grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is an apostle commissioned and called by Jesus Christ himself, the one who planted and nurtured this church. He has clear lines of authority in the minds of this church, and he's fully informed about what's going on in this church, being clued in by Chloe's people, as it says. He goes on to speak in this church about this church in glowing terms. This church with all these problems. In verse 2, Paul calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus. He calls them saints. He goes on in verse 4 to give thanks to God for the grace that he sees in these Corinthians. In verse 5, he says, In every way you were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. In verse 7, They are not lacking any spiritual gift as they're waiting for Christ's return. Verse 8, he says, they'll be found guiltless. And verse 9, no less than God himself has called them. I I tell you, it just doesn't make sense. (laughs) If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, what I started with, with all those questions, is a testimony about what this Corinthian church was dealing with. This just doesn't make sense. This greeting, this description It describes a perfect church, not the church that we're going to learn about. Was Paul smoking marijuana when he wrote this first section? Was pot legal and he was just happy when he wrote it? Because he gets gets rough later on. Was Was he practicing the sandwich rule where you, where you, um, when it comes to correction, you know what I'm talking about? You know, do you? You spread that reproof between two slices of compliments. Is Paul lying? I'll tell you what I think he's doing. I think he's doing something maybe we should all do. He's not comparing this church to another or these leaders to himself. He is taking God's perspective. He's standing from above looking at how God sees them in Christ Jesus. You know what he's doing? He's actually boasting. Not in the great work he did in planting this church. Not in the great work that this church has done in growing itself. He's boasting in the great work Christ did on the cross in rescuing these rebels. Or as the Beatty would say, these rascals. In the first verse, who called Paul to be an apostle? God. In the second verse, whose church is it? It's the church of God. Who's doing the work of sanctification according to these verses? Jesus Christ. Who's giving the grace in verse 4? God. Who will sustain them to the end? Jesus Christ. Who will these Corinthians be found guiltless in? Jesus Christ. Who is faithful in verse 9? God is faithful. Who called them into fellowship? God. Paul's boast 
his confidence is really, really, really simple. He's not looking out. He's not looking to the left or to the right. He's looking up. He addresses them as the church of God. Now, why would he do that? Because Paul's understanding is that the church is a body of people who belong not to themselves or any leader. This isn't the Beatty's church or Matt's church or Pastor Jahil's church. It's God's. And friends, we are not our own. We have been bought at a price, and that price is the blood of Jesus Christ himself. What about this word saints? Come on, Matt, saints? Really, saints? Why is he calling them saints? Isn't that a little too over the top? Aren't those saints, those super holy, self-sacrificing, iconic figures that have been canonized by some people in Rome? No. To be a saint is to be one who is set apart, to be one who's holy. Regardless of their various sins that they're involved in, Paul sees these Corinthians, these believers, to be holy in God's sight. How? He's made that way through his son. Holiness is not a matter of good works or necessarily even holy living. Yes, we should have holy, righteous lives, but we're holy in God's sight, not because of anything we do, but because Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, he, as a substitute, stood in our place for our unholiness. That's how he's able to call us saints. In that sense, though I've matured since the day I professed Christ and found new life in him now almost 33 years ago, in God's sight, I'm no more holy today than I was on that hot September day in 1984. In God's sight. That's how he's able to call these folks holy and attribute them the title saint. In God's sight, from his perspective, when he sees me, when he sees us, who's he see? Christ. He sees his son. It's, it's, it's kind of like the ultimate rose-colored glasses, isn't it? He, he looks through the lens of his son, perfect, uh, bearing the perfect, sinless, holy life, and he sees us. If you're in Christ, truly repented of your sin, and you follow him as a disciple, you have the right to call yourself a saint. It's... It's St. Stephanie, right? It's St. Tim. It's St. Erica. It's a wonderful title. None of us is worthy of it, but God has declared us to be saints because of his son. Do we have to work to conform our thoughts and our practices to be saintly and live up to our new title and our new nature? Yes, 10,000 times yes. But that work, that work that still has to be done, doesn't make us less deserving of wearing the title of saint. Greet each other after church. St. Dennis. <laughs> what do you see when you look around the church? And if you're not a part of this church, the church, your home, your home church, what do you see? Paul sees the perfect church. Because he foremost sees the perfect God. 
and the perfect son, Jesus Christ. We'd be good to have that perspective, wouldn't it? Point number two. Now, the imperfect church. Let's keep reading, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This perfect church, born of God, guiltless in Christ, not lacking any spiritual gifts, is now the imperfect church. They are inexplicably dividing up. Factions are forming. These groups were quarreling, even choosing what leader to follow, based on maybe doctrinal matters, maybe personality. He, he identifies four groups. Some say, I follow Paul. Well, it suggested that Paul, the Paul party, emphasized Christian freedom. It was the end of the law. That was Paul's big message, wasn't it? Some say, I follow Apollos. Well, we know something of Apollos from Acts 18. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, fervent, spirit, bold. Be easy to form a group around this guy's personality, I suppose. Some say, I follow Cephas, or another name, Peter. The Peter party probably represented the Jewish Christianity in some form. We know these Corinthians had some legalistic tendencies. We'll, we'll talk about those later in the book. Some say, I follow Christ. Well, who can, who can disagree with that one, right? Theologians suspect this group was actually suspicious of the other human leaders, Apollos and Peter and Paul. I think I've seen this group in my own day, to be honest with you. Their, their parents probably had that bumper, stick, bumper sticker on the back of their car, Question Authority, when they were driving around their VW Bug in college. This group is suspicious of all human leadership in general. They're above it all, declaring, I follow no man. Christ is my leader and the Bible my only authority. I've also seen the end of this mindset. I've seen it more times than I care to. You rarely see these, these folks in a committed, covenanted relationship in a local church. I remember talking to one woman who said, I don't belong to any church. I don't need that. I said, how do you worship? She says, I worship God on Sunday mornings when I run. I said, well, when I run, I generally sweat and cramp. Worship is probably the last thing on my mind. We don't know exactly the theological matters that, that separated these folks. Just that they were divided. 
they were not associating themselves to particular personalities. And, and Paul was having nothing to do with it. He asked three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? There's three rhetorical questions for you. Paul, I think like James, we know from the book of James, knows the ultimate source of their quarreling. They are allowing their passions and their desires and their covetousness to overwhelm their true calling in Christ. Quarreling and disunity, friends, are forbidden by God and totally out of character from what we are called to be in Christ. It's in opposition to everything our Lord prayed for. It's in opposition to everything He wanted for His church. And you know what? What the Lord despises and disdains in this situation, Satan loves. He applauds it. Satan, he is a divider. He loves fights. He loves quarreling. He loves backbiting. He loves bickering. He loves complaints against each other. I've seen Christians divide over everything from race and politics to music and budgets. I saw people divide over whether or not to have an American flag in a Christian church. They divided over it. My favorite division, and I say favorite with my tongue squarely in the side of my cheek, is when Christians divide over what version of the Bible to read. I'm a KJV guy. NIV only. NASB, ESV. Can you imagine anything more deplorable in God's eyes than to divide over His Word? The version of it? Do you realize all that is at stake when the church of Jesus Christ divides? We cut ourselves off from fellowship with brothers and sisters whom we're called to serve. Young believers in our midst they learn horrible habits. Unbelievers look in. They see the fracture. And they're confirmed in their ideas of Christianity. And you? You? I think you, it robs you of your joy. The joy that's intended in the unity of the body of Christ. And all the while, Christ's name is being misrepresented on the earth. His name is being defamed. What's the answer? The ground of Paul's appeal for unity is found in one word in verses 10 and 11. That word is brothers. And by brothers, they mean brothers and sisters or brethren. In verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Our unity is based on our brotherhood under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Our ability to be united in the same mind and the same judgment is based on our common claim to God as our Father. It makes us brothers and sisters baptized into Christ. Well, if brotherhood is the ground of his appeal, what's it supposed to look like? What's that mean when he calls us to have the same mind and the same judgment? Is Paul asking us to be like cult-like, you know, like follow the leader kind of stuff? Be blind about it, just do what he says? Be mere images of each other? Are, are we talking about sameness here? Paul is saying we should work to think on matters of doctrine, to think alike on these matters of doctrine and lifestyle and what it means to be the church. We're to work at it. It's to be our labor to be of one mind. Personality and temperament and gifts and abilities, all these things will be very, very different inside the church. But we can still strive to be of the same mind. You want some living proof of this? You all know Pastor Jahil, and you know something of me. Do we look anything alike? Do we, a little bit, somebody said? <laughs> I'm so sorry, brother. <laughs> We didn't come from the same neighborhoods. We didn't have the same kind of family. We didn't have the same kind of education. There's almost nothing we have alike. He wears boots all the time. I wear something to the equivalent of slippers. I, I'm always tucked in. He can preach in shorts. There's, just no, we're, there's, nothing, there's nothing there. But do you know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's another man in this church that I have more in common with. We have the same mind and the same judgment because we have Christ. And, and we've taken everything else but Christ and made it the center of our relationship. So I happily call him brother. And he calls the same to me. I think one of the least appreciated and underused words in the Bible is harmony. Twice in Romans 14 and uh, once in Colossians 3, Paul says, Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, I want to show you what harmony looks like. Now, Dave, don't get excited. We're only halfway through the sermon, okay? But I'm going to ask the Anacostia River Church singers to come up here. You didn't know we had the Anacostia River Church singers. Come on. Come on. Don't be shy now. Come on. I want to show you what harmony looks like. Together, they're better, aren't they? Than the individual parts. That's harmony. Are we all to be the same? No. Is Christ divided? No. Take some time, maybe over lunch or later this week with a friend, and ask, what can you do to put down division and harmonize with the body of Christ? Point three, perfect foolishness. For the word of the cross is folly. Beginning in verse 18, I'm reading. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Back in verse 13, Paul asked, Was Christ, was Paul crucified for you? Why would he ask such a question? I think he's rightly pushing these Corinthians to focus, to zero on, on, in on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ died for their sins, bringing them new life. Not Paul, not Peter, not Apollos. If, if members of any church give their allegiance to any person or place or cause other than Christ, then disunity, I guarantee it, disunity is going to come into that church. Jesus is the uniter of mankind, and he does it through the cross. Because the way to God is through the cross. There's no shortcuts. There's no roundabout. There's no many ways to God. To the world, this is sheer nonsense. It's even offensive. Perfect foolishness. It was then, and it is now. This is why in verse 18 it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's why in verse 23 it says, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, to the unspiritual mind, this just doesn't make sense. How can salvation come through one man who had no earthly power, who had no position, who had no possessions, how can he be the means to God? A crucified Messiah, a God who suffers, was a contradiction in terms, both to Jew and Greek. Do you understand? It's like saying hot ice. It just doesn't compute. The Jewish people knew their scripture. They knew from Deuteronomy 21 that taught that a divine curse was placed on any hanged person. How could this man, this man who hung on a tree, be the means then to salvation? Besides that, the Jews were demanding signs. In the famous Bread of Life chapters from um, John 6, the Jews asked Jesus, What sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work will you perform? Even with signs, feeding of 5,000, sight to a man born blind, the ability to a lame man to walk, signs were insufficient. They wanted more than signs. Jesus did not fit their idea of a Messiah. And the Greeks, well, they were equally dismissive. The Greek mind, which prized wisdom, 
found just incomprehensible, the ridiculous idea that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through the blood of his Son? Friends, worldly wisdom always guts the cross of its power. Worldly wisdom will never reconcile the idea that one man could die in the place of another. And you know what? You won't either. Until you get your ideas around who Christ is, you will not get it through the power of reason or enough science. You've got to get squared with who Jesus really is. Was he just another man, a boy born out of wedlock, a carpenter, a troublemaker? Or was he God incarnate, born of a virgin, sinless, prophesied to come to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, raise the dead, yet he himself condemned to die, crushed and hung on a tree, only to rise three days later, bringing new life to all who would believe and follow him. That is the word of the cross. Verse 18. That is why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. Verse 23. We Christians never move from the cross. We Christians never outgrow or do better than Christ crucified. If we do, we move from the very place of reconciliation, God reconciling man to himself. It happened on a cross. It happened in a place called Calvary. That word of the cross is the power of God on display. Perfect foolishness, isn't it? Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, drop this notion that you will come up with a better plan. <laughs> that you are somehow wiser than God. Abandon the idea that you will justify yourself through your good life. Let's not think that we're going to be stronger than God. Deuteronomy 21 actually held true. Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. Jesus was cursed. But it didn't stop there. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being a curse for us. How about you? Are you buying this perfect foolishness? <laughs> Point four. Fools made perfect. Let's read beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Without exception, apart from God, the ways of men always call for human effort and good deeds and wise words as the path of salvation. Do not mistake these for God's ways. According to Luke 4, Jesus is in Nazareth. He's in the synagogue. He's on, it's on the Sabbath. He, he reads from the scroll, scroll of Isaiah. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you see it? He did just what he promised. Paul, in verse 26, he says, Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Powerful? No. Noble birth? No. God chose the foolish and the weak and the low to shame the wise and the strong and the proud. I love the second part of this, verse 28. He chose even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. What's that mean? He chose the nothings. He chose those who in the eyes of the world do not even exist. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why he did it. God opposes the proud. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Do you understand you will not stand before God and be proud. There is a day coming when you will give an account for your life. You will not stand before God boasting in your riches or your status or your wisdom. You will not say, See God, behold, look at all I've done. Aren't you impressed? <laughs> it's not going to happen. He will oppose you. God's way is to give special position and honor only to whom? His son. You can think that's utter folly. There's been many before you. You can think planting your salvation on the spilt blood of just one man is ridiculous. But let's be honest here. You think that what you're depending on right now is a better plan? It, it's going to hold up before, before God? Instead, faith, faith says in verse 30, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Read that again. 
He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Now that's a boast. <laughs> if there's an unofficial sport that garners most of the attention among the elders, it would be pro basketball. Not really for Jahil or me. It's really just the other two guys. Jeremy Cleveland Cavaliers McLean and Thabiti anybody but LeBron Anyabwile. With Jeremy now planting a new church, I think we'll save, what, 15 to 30 minutes every, every week, Jahil, on elder meetings? Who's, who's, who's Thabiti going to talk it up to, right? I quietly rooted this past June for Steph Curry. I like that he's willing to stand on his Christian beliefs. I like that he wanted to plant his favorite verse on his shoes, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't much like that the verse got shortened to the slogan. You know what it is? I can do all things. If I say, I can do all things, who gets the glory? If I say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, who gets the glory? Yeah. Big difference. Verse 31, therefore it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Thank God, in His wisdom, He chose the imperfect. Thank God for His church made perfect. And thank God for His perfect Son. Is that your boast? Is that who you're boasting in today? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for apart from your intervention, apart from your coming between us and the sure road of destruction, there's not one in this room that would have worked or spoken his way out of hell. You have been kind and merciful. You have made us rich in mercy through Jesus Christ, your son, rescuing us, redeeming us, and putting us on a narrow path of righteousness. We thank you, God, that you have chosen the foolish and the weak, those that are nothing, as part of your plan, that we might boast, that you might get all the glory. Make us great boasters for Jesus Christ. Unite our body in an uncommon way, we pray, we pray, Father, that you would bring harmony that the world is baffled by. 
that in our unity, rather than defaming you through division in our unity, your name would be magnified. Do this, we pray, for our own good and do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.